Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, thanks for listening to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm so thrilled that you're here listening today. We have a really magnificent episode for you that's full of beautifully rich stories all the way from St. Petersburg, Russia. We are joined by the beautiful Anna Guriva. She is the founder of the Yoga Shala in St. Petersburg, a place where Russell and I went and taught back in 2018. And um, we're just so thrilled that she's here. She's going to share her incredible life story uh, growing up in communist Russia and um, some of the events that unfolded, as well as her family history, and then her own life story, which involves joining a Russian um, New Age cult, as well as immersing herself in the mystical practices of the Kabbalah and the teachings of the Russian mystic Gurujiv, as well as eventually settling into her home and root tradition, uh, a type of Tibetan Buddhism, and eventually incorporating the practices of Ashtanga Yoga into her Tibetan meditation practice as well, or more like to go alongside her meditation practice. Um, you are just going to love this episode. It's so unique and so different. And she is our first Russian guest. And if you'd like to continue this discussion on feminism and the Ashtanga Yoga practice that we get into here at the end of the interview, I would encourage you to join our live online panel discussion that we are having on September 10th. Anna Griva will be one of the guests along with several other women of Ashtanga Yoga. Adam Keene and I are co-hosting the event and we are just very excited to invite you to join. It's a free event. Uh, it will include Chandana Bomek, Korya Nanda, as well as Helena Rosenthal, Isa Gitana, who we've also interviewed on a previous podcast, Kathy Cooper, Laura Miguel, who you can also listen to in a previous episode with us, Maria Books, and Mariela Cruz, both who have been guests on our podcast, as well as Nia Ferra and Peg Mulqueen. So there's lots of amazing people on this panel of women, mothers as well as non-mothers of children, maybe some fur baby mothers, as well as younger practitioners, older practitioners, women who have gone through life transition. And we're going to be talking about all things related to practicing Ashtanga Yoga as a woman or in a female body and some of the issues and differences to be aware of. Um, so I hope that you'll join that Sunday, October 10th. You can find all the information on Adam Keen's website, keenonyoga.com and backslash women-in-ashtanga. There'll be a link in the show notes as well. And I would love to have you join me Saturday, October 9th. That's this coming Saturday. I'll be teaching a lead primary class online for Ashtanga Yoga Ahus. This is the Yoga Shala of Anna Schwarzfeld, who we've also interviewed in a previous podcast episode. You can tune into her uh, episode. It's a lovely one, um, all the way from Sweden. I will be teaching an uh, online class for her Yoga Shala as well as giving a conference talking about the Bhagavad Gita and 
using um, some of the teachings in there to just inform our practice. So ancient wisdom for everyday living. We're going to touch upon three types of yoga, jnana yoga, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and how we can integrate these into our daily lives and into our practices as well. So that event's happening on October 9th. You can find all the information on my website HarmonySlater.com. And that also brings me to another quick, quick little um, reminder to sign up for Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor's Living Yoga course. This is an in-depth look at the Bhagavad Gita. It's an incredible course that um, they have created. It's all pre-recorded videos with three live classes with them. And when you sign up through uh, my link, then you will receive also two extra bonus calls. We're forming a bit of a study group and um, having some discussions around the Bhagavad Gita, as well as a free ticket to an upcoming workshop that I'll be teaching. So uh, check it out on my website, again, harmonyslater.com. I would encourage you to sign up uh, and join this course. I've been diving into it myself lately, and it's just so enriching learning from Richard and Mary, and I can't wait to sit in on these live classes with them and just soak up all of their wisdom and all of their teachings. And if you missed um, the podcast that we did with them most recently, please uh, go back a couple of weeks and listen to their episode called Living Yoga. And we also had another episode with them back in December last year. If you'd like to uh, get your fill of Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, who can really ever get enough of the two of them. So um, yeah, those are all of my little bits and pieces of announcements before diving into this beautiful interview. So without further ado, I just want to open up the conversation and introduce you to this incredible woman, Anna Griva. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm so happy you're here with us today. I am joined by Russell Kay. Good morning, everyone. And we are meeting today with a beautiful woman who I met in St. Petersburg, Russia. St. Petersburg? Yes. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> Anna Gorivia. Hi, Anna. How are you? Hi, Harmony. Hi, Russell. I'm Hello. fine. How are you? Very well. <laughs> I, I have a little intro for you, Anna. If I, could, if I could read it just to introduce you to our listeners. They should already know you, but just, just in case. Uh, Anna Gorivia. Uh, which I did not pronounce correctly, evidently, uh, practices Ashtanga Yoga in the Mysore tradition and Tibetan Buddhism in the Kanamakagyu tradition. Authorized teacher of Ashtanga Yoga, founder and teacher of Ashtanga Yoga Shali SPB, which is... St. Petersburg. Oh, of course. Yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> Author of the book Space and Bliss, Yoga and Buddhism for Life in the Modern World. Oh, fantastic. And you wrote and published a book since the last time we we saw you in St. Petersburg. Um, kind of. <laughs> oh, yeah, you've been working on it the whole time. Well, um, no. I mean, it, I think I've been collecting uh, material for it for a long time, like writing notes here and there and... Um, writing lectures for workshops and so on but um, the very uh, process of 
uh, writing it from the beginning to the end um, happened in winter. <laughs> this winter. It, you know, wow. it's, an, it's an interesting title, Space and Bliss. Because I sort of, um, I'm talking about yoga and Buddhism, I sort of end the modern world. I sort of think of immediately of suffering. That's where it sort of starts and stops for me is just suffering. So <laughs> I, I'm interested in space and bliss. Where do you get that from? <laughs> well, it's um, uh, the main metaphor in Vajrayana Buddhism um, that describes um uh, the relationship between uh, uh, the consciousness and uh, the creative force, like uh, Shiva and Shakti in Tantra, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, well in Buddhism, it's very it's um, very similar to the Indian Tantra. Actually, um, it's uh, often described like uh, <clears throat> if your consciousness is really open and uh, don't have um, a reference point, a self-reference point and uh, truly accepting and soft and tender then um, the creative energy can fully manifest there and um, uh, <laughs> this is where all the wonders happen <laughs> so um, this is how i feel it now in my mm. own practice and uh, in my own life. So I, for me, it's uh, the, the best way to describe it, uh, this, this process internally and externally as well. <laughs> wow. That's so right. <clears throat> this, is this a new um, kind of awakening or opening for you, this spacious bliss feeling in your practice, or was there always the seed of it? Well, they they say that uh, there is always a seed of it, otherwise no one could uh, experience it. But yeah, it's relatively new. And um, for, for many years, it was exactly like uh, Russell said, um, <laughs> more about suffering and overcoming suffering and trying just to get back to normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, then... Um, then it's happened, I think, naturally, but through through suffering again. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> unavoidable. Yeah, yeah. So, that's what I've uh, discovered. Yeah, um. yeah. So through the time of a deep suffering, um, I kind of uh, shifted to to a new way of uh, feeling into it, to being there. <laughs> I, I wonder if you could if you could help our listeners kind of understand what you're what you're physically and and emotionally going through in a very specific way because you know, when I wake up you know I look around and I say oh fuck I'm awake again uh-huh <laughs> and then I I get up uh, reluctantly and then I I go in I'll make myself a, a coffee and I'll sit down um and just read the newspaper and and hope that no one disturbs me in any way uh -huh. and um then I'll have the the coffee and then I'll feel a kind of sense of like magic Mm -hmm. And I'll start looking out, and I'll and I'll see Harmony is like, oh, I love her. That's that's nice. Or I'll <laughs> I'll look at the the coffee coaster. It's like, oh, I love this coffee coaster. The same uh -huh. way, and, you know. I'll look at I'll look outside, and I'll see some squirrels on our bird feeder stealing food. And I'm like, oh, I love those things. That's nice. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I just feel like I I even feel it in my like my chest feels more expansive and open, and I feel you know physically. 
you know, good in a, mm-hmm. in a way. It's I guess that's almost indescribable. If I if I if I've been specific enough, I'm just wondering: is that how can you describe what you're feeling? How do you how do you know that it's bliss? <laughs> well. Um... Yeah, when it gets towards it's uh, everything becomes everything is confused. (laughs) 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 Uh, um, Words are difficult because they don't uh, explain exactly the the experience. It's hard to contain it in in a word. That's absolutely right. There are containers that are inevitably. a, a, a closed vehicle rather than an open one. Yeah, and of course we can have a different definition and feeling of what bliss is. Uh, so, uh, um, for me, it's uh, for me it's a state where I don't actually <clears throat> clean cling so strongly to anything it's like very mm. open and very soft and very tender and uh, you know it's like mm, like you like you like you have a small child and uh, uh, he or she comes to you with a flower because i mean he just found a flower somewhere on the road and he wants to share the joy of looking at uh, at the flower with you with mm-hmm. without any agenda and without any desire to get something back because he doesn't even know that uh, this is what is supposed to happen that if you share something then maybe you'll get something back <laughs> so and and you see it and and you see this uh, like innocent and open consciousness and pure mm-hmm. generosity and your heart melts like mm-hmm. completely and the feeling of tenderness and softness just fills you up from mm-hmm. from the toes to head this is how i describe bliss <laughs> for myself something That's like that beautiful <laughs> and something i think so many people can connect with because yeah. Especially if you've had a child, I'm sure you you've had actually had that experience, and you know exactly how it feels too. When uh-huh. you're just yeah. immersed in that ocean of of endless love. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Know, that's, uh-huh. that's really interesting because um, I remember my mother. Um, she tried a she tried a drug therapeutically, uh, MDMA, or they call it Molly or ecstasy. And she tried it with my stepfather, and she described this sensation that you just explained or defined. Uh-huh. And she said that she hadn't experienced it in maybe 20 years, because um, she had been um, uh, horrifically attacked when I was a child. And so I, it's interesting. I think it, it, it is something that we can, we, can, uh, we can find, but sometimes the, the traumas that we have are so intense and so deep that and so layered that sometimes it's very difficult to to see it, to see the experience in, in mm-hmm. order to cultivate it. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder for you, um, did you, did you, did you notice it when you were in meditation? Did you notice it that you were, it was more sustained through the day? Like, was there a time in your life recently where, where it very, where it started to percolate? 
do you mean when it when I felt it for the first time, or do you mean like when do I feel it uh, most strongly during my everyday experience? Oh, yeah, I'm interested in the answer to both those questions. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I think um, we all have this experience oftentimes. But of course, the question is, uh, do we pay attention to it or not? And uh, do we pay attention, uh, pay attention more to our suffering or... To this kind of states, and um, uh, I remember when I when when this experience became so strong that just I just couldn't ignore it anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it actually happened when uh, my um, Buddhist teacher, my Lama, um, agreed to be my teacher. And, uh, yeah, I asked him, and the thing was that um, he was very sick. Mm-hmm. So he was very sick and he could hardly um, stay uh, straight. And but um, nevertheless, uh, he came and uh, to to teach uh, the group of people uh, who were there. And um, uh, some time ago, I realized that uh, he is exactly uh, the person that I needed. He is. Uh, um, He's my teacher. I mean, it's it's difficult to to explain, but uh, it's like uh, like falling in love. When you meet your teacher, you just know <laughs> this mm. is the guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, there were some um, uh, let's say preliminary processes. Uh, I uh, I was. Um, um, meeting him here and there, listening to how he was teaching, and so I kind of knew him a little bit. Uh, and so it wasn't like an act of blind faith or something. But anyway, and uh, uh, um, he is uh, actually the lineage holder of the Karma Kagyu okay. <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. yeah. So when when I decided that he he is my teacher, it was like okay, he will never say yes because he's so busy. <laughs> it's mm. obvious he has so many students and things to do. Like who am I to to even think about that? But so um, the desire was so strong, and I checked like my motivation like thousands of times like I was taught (laughs) check your motivation you said yeah it's Mm. like not not it was not only for me but because I wanted to be useful for others that's how I described it for myself at that Mm -hmm. moment and so so I asked him and because he was very sick um, his attendants asked me to leave asked me not to talk to him and um um and I was about to leave India at that time. So it was maybe the last chance to ask and to talk. Excuse me, were you in um, Bailakupe or Dharmasala? Uh in Delhi. In, in Delhi, uh, okay. In Karmapa Buddhist Institute in Delhi where I go to to practice and for retreats. Oh, usually, I used to go <laughs> once a year or twice a year, mm-hmm. and and he just stopped and he uh, sent his attendants uh, out and uh, started to, uh, talking to me and and he said yes, <laughs> and uh, and he had like this feeling of kindness and compassion and uh, desire to support was so strong, and I was just filled with it. I, I mean, from his side. 
Mm. And then I, I'm, I'm, I, my head just melted completely. <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt like, like the tenderness um, was there again. <laughs> like all, all the hard ages and all this um, feelings of loss and being wronged and uh, suffering, they just disappeared you wow. know, in, in his unconditional compassion <laughs> wow. yeah and uh, it was so strong that uh, for maybe like uh, a day or two i felt like being under some substances <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah that. i understand yeah and i couldn't really talk i could only listen and look and like uh, trying to fill myself into this uh, new kind of uh, expanded and tender consciousness. And of course, like maybe sometimes after <clears throat> the intensity of this experience um, uh, weakened, but I could never forget. Never. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. You know, it's... Um, it's it's it is it's like magic and i was i was thinking of um of the story that you told about the child that brings you a flower and mm. one of the things that's really <clears throat> magic and, and magical for me to watch is is harmony's mother when um whenever her grandchildren or whenever our our, our kid our son uh comes to her with anything she's always she has so much generosity and patience and 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 she's so truly joyful to receive any information or 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 news or some gift from him. Mm -hmm. She's like, "Oh, that's amazing, Jediah. That's wonderful." Mm -hmm. And you can really see this kind of overwhelming love in her for for her grandchild. Uh huh. And it was it was so different for me. I mean, because my when I would go to my grandmother, it was just stoicism. It was oh. just. Um, <laughs> You're in front of the baseball game. Uh, sit down, and I'm gonna um, so that we can watch the Chicago Cubs. So just sit down and be quiet. I'm gonna smoke oh. and drink, and mm -hmm. um, you just sit there. And so it was very, a very different experience. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious to know um, how. Forgive me. How how old are you, Anna? I'm forty. Forty. So a little bit younger than me, and. So 1980, you're growing up, and it's still the Soviet Union in in Saint Petersburg. Where you grow, is it uh -huh. Leningrad then? <clears throat> yeah, it was Leningrad then. <laughs> so, what was it like for you in Leningrad when you would go to your grandmother with some small thing that you had discovered? Well, actually, I'm from Siberia, and um, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very cold and lonely. Well, you, had your family been banished there? Is that what happens? I don't know. Uh, my my mom still lives here, uh, and um, my grandma died. But uh, first, they uh, she and my grandpa moved to Moscow uh, because uh, he worked at Moscow in Moscow. Oh, wow. He actually worked for government. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So uh, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandparents in summer. And uh, well, I think my grandma was kind of in between of yours and 
because uh, she was very sweet, but also very demanding uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, all the things uh, uh, must be done in time and so on. But um, well, because she she had a difficult life and uh, she just wanted to teach me how to survive. That's it. <laughs> yeah, and I think she succeeded. <laughs> how how do you survive? What did she teach you? Uh, well, um, first of all, she taught me to take care of other people <laughs> mm. in all possible ways, like just to to pay attention, like. For her, it was the um, the key to success because uh, they, um, you know, in Soviet Union, um, people used to live uh, in what is called the like communal flat. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like a colliving nowadays. Yeah, but colliving, you go to live in colliving voluntary and. Uh, that time people just didn't have choice <laughs> they they had to like uh, used to to share a common space uh, to, mm-hmm. yeah because there were not enough buildings and so on so um they they shared uh, an apartment with uh, two or three other families uh, mm-hmm. and um, of course when she was a child she she lived in a small uh, bashkirian village and her old survival depended uh, de- depended on survival of her neighbors and her family and so on. So they just continuously supported each other, and uh, that's uh, that, that is was uh, the best way for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just to look around and to see what what what's going on and how you can help, and then ask for help if you need it, and so on. <clears throat> Right. And uh, another thing, uh, she was a teacher. Actually, all my family, all people in my family are teachers. So this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I promised myself not to be a teacher. Never. Oh. Oh, <laughs> you here yeah. you are. You're a teacher. Yeah, you yeah. come from a long lineage that is <laughs> unbroken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she was, uh, she was very strict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, she kn- she knew how to um, how to make people work and uh, do their homework, and but <laughs> also to inspire them to 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 make them interested uh, in her <clears throat> in Russian literature <laughs> and Russian language. <laughs> uh, this is what uh, she was teaching, and <clears throat> so I had to. To do things on time, just to come home on time and um, to keep my things in order and, and to do my homework. Right. <laughs> so so yeah. when she was growing up, she was living like in an apartment, maybe with three bedrooms and each family had like their own room and then they shared bathroom and kitchen kind and everything of. like yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah. And how did how did you grow up with your family? Uh, in a small flat in a Siberian town that is called Tomsk, and um, oh, Tomsk! Um, I've been to Tomsk. Tomsk. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's the 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 railway goes through Tomsk, doesn't it? From um, Beijing to Moscow, you can you stop in no, in no. Omsk? Uh, it's, Omsk. It's Omsk. 
It's yeah, Omsk. that's Omsk. Oh, never mind. And yeah. Tomsk wasn't was excluded from this railway because um, the merchants uh, didn't pay money <laughs> to someone. <laughs> I don't remember the story, but they just refused to pay money, so they, you know, Tomsk was excluded from the main. Road. I see. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was it was actually a place of exile. And during um, the times before the Soviet Union, it was a place of exile. And of a, of a, uh, exile. Exile. Oh, God. yeah. So if somebody yeah. did something wrong, they would send them to yeah. the town. They would send them to yeah. Tomsk. Yeah. Yeah. All the, yeah. All the criminals went to Tomsk. <laughs> yeah, like Australia, like that. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. yeah. Do you think all that's how? Kids. Is that how your family ended up in Tomsk? <laughs> well. Well, they could. Well, yeah. uh, uh, na- actually, nowadays it's a u- university center of no. Siberia. There are mm. a lot of um, educational um, center there, yeah. and um, you do a lot mm, of reading in prison. That's right. So yeah, because what else can you do? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, mm. and uh, my father actually he was I don't remember how is it pronounced pronounced English. Um. Dissident. Oh yeah. yeah, dissident. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. he was yeah, a, he, he a was political a political dissident. Um, yeah, he wasn't imprisoned, but he but he almost he almost got there mm. <laughs> for reading prohibited books and like uh, uh, what's like a prohibited? Solzhenitsyn. Oh, like Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, that's a fantastic book. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, the, the and one that's. Fathers. It's about, uh, there's one that's about the Siberian camps by Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So he and some uh, other uh, guys used to to meet um, in a, let's say, greenhouse where tomatoes grew or something like that. (laughs) And to read uh, all this prohibited literature there. This and, is a, uh, I hate to interrupt. Yeah. This is so funny. There's a there's a man calling Harmony, and he's from the he's from the Ukraine, which I think uh-huh. is I think that's White Russia, is it not? No, no White what? Russia is Belarusia. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's not Red Russia. Which which Russia is? It's Little Russia. Ukraine is Little Russia. It's it's not Russia at all. <laughs> yeah. okay. I'm sorry. I was just reading last night about the 16th century Russia, and that and I was uh-huh. it was called, referred to as as Little Russia. But never mind. Go ahead. In the USSR. Before no, no, no. That. Long before. Pre-USSR. Long before. Yeah. Ah, long before. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Never mind. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so they would meet in a greenhouse and yeah. and read all of the prohibited literature and have discussions and yeah and then somebody got to know and went to kgb oh yeah yeah. and uh, yeah yeah then they had some really uh, terrible times (laughs) because my my father had to go there and answer the questions and uh, yeah but somehow he was lucky not to to be imprisoned wow and actually at that time he was dating with my mom, and he was taking her there every time. <laughs> wow! And he remembers it was, you know, such a like romantic feeling, like oh, the greenhouse. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> I was the book. The book I was reading was um, the Romanovs, uh, uh-huh. the entire dynasty by um, this author uh, Montefiore, mm-hmm. and um, it was inevitably someone is is tortured. That's the whole history of Russia. It's like, oh, this person was then tortured. And <laughs> it's a real shocking window into the history of Russia and the and Russian suffering. And I, I think it's um I wonder if I could bring it up a little bit because I, I feel like um we don't have an adequate picture to this to the suffering of of the Russian people, because I think that would help us have more sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um like the the story of Stalingrad, you know, most Americans think that they won World War II. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Mm-hmm. That's their yeah, yeah. We won that, and whereas you know, England has a different impression altogether. Uh, you know, I think something like two million people, two million Russian people died in just that one battle in Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had read that you know over twenty seven million people died in World War II. And this is mm-hmm. like a living memory for our grandparents. You know, they, mm-hmm. you know, my my grandfather was in Italy at the time. Like they were, they were. I mean, he's dead now, but they. This is something that that we could have talked to our grandparents about, and it's something that your grandmother and your grandfather, it's their their experience is um, of this of this kind of hardship is is present is present for you, and I wonder if you know if like just talking about being a dissident for example but all of the sort of all of the death like it's, it seems like for us it was like a real very much a part of the russian experience is to is to experience is to know to know to know people who've died uh-huh well um I think Russians in general are used to suffer. (laughs) (laughs) So we just don't make a thing out of it. I mean, we just don't really dramatize it or something. And uh, um, actually, um, my parents uh, used to to talk about the war and uh, how how it was in that time. But um, they were um, they were kids, and so maybe they uh, didn't. You know, kids experience everything like differently. So mm-hmm. the the experience wasn't uh, shocking. It was it was difficult, and it was. Uh, um, but it was not about dying. It was more about like finding a way to to leave something mm-hmm. like that. At least this was the message that I got from my grandparents and. Right. <laughs> right. Um, uh, the father of my grandma um, was in the army, and uh, it so happened uh, that uh, he wasn't given leave for a long time. And mm-hmm. then my grandma wrote a letter to Stalin. I mean, Jesus she, she Christ! Wrote, yes, she wrote a letter to Stalin because she she saw her she she saw his face. Uh, on the wall. I mean, his portraits were everywhere. So she was he seeing his face, and uh, uh, everybody uh, um, were saying that like he is uh, responsible for everything. So if you want to father your father back, just talk to Stalin. <laughs> that was well, that was her logic. Uh. So she actually wrote him a letter. Wow. Imagine. 
it happened. <laughs> Her father was uh, let go. To wow. Her, but, uh, uh yeah he, he he came home for vacation for a week or something and of course the family was shocked because my granny had no idea what the consequences of her action could be she just was yeah. so naive and she was so fearless at the same time and she yeah so <laughs> wow uh so uh this kind of stories i heard from her because <laughs> I'm, I'm it's shocking to me that she wasn't you know Put in a, she was a child, right? She was a child, but of course, uh, I mean, she was just, I don't know how it happened, because the whole family could be killed. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but, but somehow, I, I, I don't know why um, they just let her father wow. home. <laughs> incredible. You know, something that we, um, that you hear being talked about is this notion of inherited trauma in, uh-huh. in the way that your your um your habit of action is so much like your grandparents' habit that the mm-hmm. that, that the trauma becomes carried through the generations. And so in, in the Jewish people, you know, we so continuously talk about the Holocaust all the time. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you go today, you know, when I was going to temple, um it's still it's still talked about as though it happened yesterday and people are talking about mm-hmm. let's not let's make sure this doesn't happen again even though this thing happened 80 years ago and mm-hmm. and so one thing i wanted to ask you about is this other very kind of um shocking um statistic that i that i learned about when we were in russia when you were very graciously invited us to russia and and in, it seems like it, it would be a thing that would would inform your interactions in life. And as you said, people don't dramatize suffering. They just get on with it and find a way to live. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about this this word in, in Russian, um, krepesnoy, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. A, we define as, as a serf. Mm-hmm. And... Can you talk about that 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 notion at all? Is that something that that uh, people talk about at all today? No, mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. they just don't. And this is uh, uh, this is interesting. I've been thinking about it a lot uh, last year when uh, this um, Black Lives Matter movement happened right. uh, in mm-hmm. the US, and then I realized that actually. Uh, both Russia and the US uh, um, diminished slavery not so long time ago. That's and, right. I mean, almost at the same time. That's right. Yeah, yeah. eighteen. Yeah. In um in Russia it was it was eighteen sixty one. Uh huh. Alexander the first. Uh-huh. And in eighteen sixty three it was Lincoln. And yeah, I have a stat that I wanted to read to you. Um, when Lincoln, I think our listeners would be shocked by this because i don't think they really truly comprehend the russian condition so in 1863 when when lincoln freed this the american slaves there were three and a half million slaves in the united states which is one tenth of our population so one tenth of our population were slaves when when the serfs who are who really are slaves because i mean they're bred they're sold. You cannot choose who you get to marry. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're mm-hmm. you you're not paid. You know, it's a mm-hmm. slave. So um, I think they make a distinction that the serf is not a slave because the serf belongs to the land. So if you buy and sell the land, you the serf comes with it. Something mm-hmm. like a like a Martha. It's in, like a, in, <laughs> a Martha in The Handmaid's Tale. Exactly. Yeah. It's an indentured servant. It's an indentured servant, which is a, a slave. So, <laughs> in in eighteen sixty, when Alexander the First freed the slaves, there were twenty three million slaves in Russia, which is one third of the population. Mm-hmm. And here we are now in twenty twenty, and we're we're the the specter of slavery and institutionalized slavery is th- completely through our justice system mm-hmm. and, and so i was thinking about that for your people that still today a third of your people are maybe more are descended from from serfs and how you don't talk about it but i wonder how it impacts your interactions uh we don't talk about it. I mean, uh, of course, in, in the circles of uh, people who study history or <clears throat> teach history like my parents, of course they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly like mm, as some kind of um, historical event or period. So not personally, not connecting mm-hmm. to, to this um times uh, and experiences uh, personally but um uh what we still have in russia definitely is this kind of like mentality (laughs) (laughs) where um, people are really frightened most of the time Hmm. it's uh it's i mean it's um it's an overall uh, feeling when you stay in russia for a while maybe like for a year you st- you start uh, experiencing this um, feeling of uh, uncertainty and uh, of not being protected and um, um, feeling a possibility of uh, being wronged in any possible way mm-hmm. and being absolutely um, powerless and being frightened to do anything about it. So. Mm-hmm. This is why we have everything that we have. <laughs> but this because is very... people are just afraid all the time. But I think this is very similar to the African American experience: is that all the time, a police, you knowing that a police officer could kill you and get away with it, and uh-huh. that there is no justice for you, and that there is no uh, job possibility, that there is no work available, and like this is um. The overwhelming majority of the of of the feeling, and a few people mm-hmm. can escape that. Uh huh. But it, for, you know, so like, like you know, but for the most, this living in fear, you know, they talk about the emotional and physical consequences of hypertension and and uh, lower mortality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, adverse childhood. Um, uh, experiences can can increase your m- mortality. Like it's mm-hmm. it's um it's to think that that, is, that could be so pervasive through Russia as being your your most common experience for your for the yeah. the Russian citizen, and that it's like that. <laughs> and yet you are coming to us with this book about bliss, mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I, I was, I was, I was amazed when I, when, we, when Harmony and I taught. Do you remember teaching? And and do you remember what it was like teaching the Russian people? And there's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was so wonderful to to be in Russia because, of course, you know, growing up as a a ballet dancer, aspiring ballerina, you know, Russia is so. Um, you know, elevated when it comes to ballet. And especially when I was interested in, in ballet growing up, it, Russia was like the place, right? You had mm-hmm. Nureyev and Baryshnikov and, you know, all the, all the great ballerinas and, and ballet companies that, um, in Russia. So it was always a, a country of deep, uh, fascination for me. And, and, um, and that, I you know that sense of like that really strict hardness. Um, I think growing up as a as a ballerina it was something that I craved or I really like was attracted to. Like you know, I always feel like ballet. Well, when I was taking it, maybe it's changed now. Was kind of like being in a in a beautiful, elegant army. You know, the (laughs) teachers were like drill sergeants and they were cruel and like it was all about being able to um, survive. Right. There was nothing like that epitomized this sort of, you know, elegant army more than like the Russian ethos. (laughs) And so um, when we were teaching there, it was it was incredible because the students, you know, I found were there's sort of like a an initial hardness maybe to the exterior, like a shell of protection. But mm-hmm. then once you like penetrate into the personality a little bit or like um, maybe uh, there's a comfort level that happens, yeah. there's just like so much warmth and emotion mm-hmm. and, and softness mm-hmm. and, and frig- sensitivity and fragility yeah and and even a fragility like a um <clears throat> yeah it's just really beautiful it's like a a beautiful uh fabergé egg or something <laughs> like a fabergé egg yeah, yeah. Well. i think that kind of um you know exemplifies like all of all of what what you have both been speaking to that, I mean, there's just so much uh, history there of, of pain and loss and um, uncertainty and abuse on all different Mm -hmm. levels, Um, you know, politically also in the family, um, you know, even in the institutions, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's like dance or gymnastics or, you know, hockey or whatever, right. There's just like a real, Everything was very hard, and and so you had to develop a, a hardness, but that's kind of protecting a, a sweet, soft uh, center. Center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is that what the students are like for you, or are they automatically more um, open and like? Do you penetrate more easily through the? the exterior well it, it depends of course it's hard to generalize it's mm-hmm. uh, it's different with um with uh, every student <laughs> mm-hmm. and um it's it's also hard to generalize um 
in terms of um, if Russians, all Russians are like that or not. Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, you know, like people in yoga community can be very different from people in other circles. And uh, yeah. whether we like it or not, we live in a yoga bubble with little contact with, with other bubbles. <laughs> yeah. At least yeah, this but... is what happens uh, in our like, yoga and especially in the Ashtanga community. Now it's getting better, but still. Uh, so... Um, but the thing that I know about almost every Russian that I that I have ever met is that uh, Russian all Russians are very passionate. So mm. that Russian mentality has a pronounced quality of passion, and it's and this is manifested everywhere and in everything, including yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if they start doing something, they do it like 100%. And they can forget next day, but... <laughs> right. In the moment, Still, it's always 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. Is, this is something that I was, I was overwhelmed by. Um, being trained in, in the arts, uh, you, you know, our job is to study the art book. And know uh-huh. every artist, and know their, and know you know the period and how that came about, and you know you feel like you could you could start in in Egypt and just you could you could walk somebody through a museum. Like every art student should be able to take their their grandmother through a museum and explain everything to them and how it happened. Mm-hmm. And yet, so my mother came with uh, Harmony and I, and we went to the Hermitage, and. I it was it was so emotional to go through that museum and see the Russian passion and the Russian uh skill and ability and I was I was so overwhelmed by the the amount of work that was there that is is there was completely uh Faced from the the European art books, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. None mm-hmm. of those people, Levitan or Serov, all of these amazing, amazing painters. Like there's nothing in the books. Oh really? Yeah. And so you could take <laughs> our most popular book, the Gardener's Art Book, and you could double it in size if you included Russian art. Uh-huh. And it's it was it was like wow, these people are really fucking good. <laughs> really fucking good and we know nothing about them and it's it was um i i i bring that up just because of what you of what you said about the passion and you know you uh-huh. read dostoevsky like you can get a book out of russia but you can't get a painting you know like you can <laughs> you can get dostoevsky out um but it's um and you and you you know yeah i mean do, i mean that's crime and punishment right it's like it's like 1500 pages about suffer about russian suffering and guilt uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. i want to yeah. i want to know more ab- about your story though and so you were growing up in tomsk and then do you move to moscow with your family or and then you grow spend the rest of your youth there or is it just the summers were in tomsk uh no um i grew up in tomsk and um I entered uh, the university there and uh, studied for two years and a half or something. And um, my grandparents uh, moved to Moscow already. Mm-hmm. 
So I wasn't, I didn't have a plan to move anywhere out of Tomsk because um, all my friends were there and um, yeah, all my communities and so on. <clears throat> but then um, it so happened that uh, uh, I got into a sect. Uh, if I say it right, mm-hmm. I mean, a sect, yeah, like a cult, sect, sect or cult, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> what, what were you studying Sorry. in university? <laughs> um, university, it was um, Roman languages and literature, something oh, like that. You were studying Roman languages and literature, and then you you discovered a cult. What kind of cult was it? kind of krishna people okay. but krishna. Uh, some yeah but it was kind of deviation from the mainstream <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so um it was a family um uh, with a husband and wife and their relatives and um i got there because i worked for them they opened the first um book uh, the first um shop of um, this kind of um, eastern philosophy books you know where you can buy like um, this weird uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. objects uh, like um, marble not marble um, like tarot cards and right. uh, oh, weird yeah. books and yeah, uh, like incense a, sticks and blah blah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a, a um, uh, what do they call it? I'm gonna say a self help, but that's not the name. But like a a bookstore that sells like the crystals and the yeah yeah, oh, yeah the talismans yeah. A, new and age. The, yeah. a new age bookstore. Exactly. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are so they, were they were they ethnically Russian or were they were they Indian? No, or? no, no, Russians. They were okay, Russians, yeah. and uh, so it was a kind of uh, exotic scene for our mm-hmm. town, and um, I immediately. Uh, sign up <laughs> because I just just wanted to be in this environment and read all these books and so on right and so um uh it's a long story how I fall in love with the man and mm-hmm. uh, then um like f- found myself uh, in the family and <clears throat> stopped studying at the university and um uh spend maybe three years there with them and it was maybe the worst kind of abuse that i have ever experienced in my life because it was like yeah really like everything that you can imagine about like religious cult it was everything was there like um i don't know physical and sexual abuse and uh, like mm, manipulate deep uh, psychological manipulating Mm -hmm. and um, like using you for for working and uh, like a kind of like domestic slave or something right like everything and so <laughs> wow and i was so young so and I actually grew up in a pretty i mean my parents were strict but uh they were sweet and um so i didn't really have to to protect myself from right. anything and so i didn't know how to do it so um and uh, being there just um destroyed my personality completely i mean everything that i that i was thinking about myself and everything 
all my self images and all my plans and all my um, connections with people and communities and my family, everything was just destroyed to ashes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And um, so my parents didn't know how to, how to help, what to do. Mm -hmm. well, they just, they were just helpless. And nobody knew actually. And um, it so happened then that my grandma <clears throat> got very sick, and uh, so we we went to Moscow. So my parents somehow managed to insist that I would go with them to Moscow because she was very sick, and I really loved her. Mm -hmm. So I went with them, and then um, finally being out of this vicious circle. I just felt that I can get out. <laughs> right. And I stayed in Moscow with my grandparents. And then it took a lot of time just to to break this connection completely, but still, like, slowly, slowly, uh, it happened. Boom. When, and, uh, when you were in the, the cult and in that circle, uh -huh. were you aware at all that, like, there was a lot of super unhealthy, abusive things going on? No. So I mean, you, yeah, you were just immersed no. in it. Yeah, I will, and uh, I remember feeling myself like being frozen, you know, as mm -hmm. if my consciousness like got frozen and uh, like all my sensations and my perceptions just stopped at some point. Mm -hmm. Like I remember myself being sleepy all the time and not responsive to like, stimulus of uh, outer world and uh, something like that <clears throat> were and, your parents uh, worried about you did they could they see that something was going on um it's a it's a um, it's a weird and difficult story because of, of course they knew because i left home i went to like got out of the university and uh moved to live with some unknown guy and his wife. <laughs> it was right. weird enough already. And his wife. Yeah. And his wife and um, his wife's sister and some other women too. Right. So, yeah. And, um, but they didn't know how to, um, how to, what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they actually, they, um, they tried, but through, um through like negative um uh mostly through negativity and accusing me in mm -hmm. being and not being a good daughter and not behaving properly something right. like that yeah, yeah yeah so of course i mean that people were doing the same <laughs> yeah. so i was in between two fires and uh, like uh, this feeling of no escape and then finally my grandparents um realized what was going on when I came to Moscow and offered me a shelter and and immediately accepted it like finally <laughs> and you you Sorry. hid there from them huh did you hide there were you hiding were you just not responding I mean they they're mm -hmm. these people want you back of course yeah they were calling me every evening for a long time and um, talking to me and um, trying to yeah trying to get me back and my grandpa um, he he was 
uh, really angry about um, about that. But he was wise enough not to prohibit me, <laughs> not to stop me. He just waited, right. you know, until mm-hmm. I until I uh, finally could see uh, and could make my own decision. It was very wise because. I think that if he just um, insisted on me not communicating um, uh, with that guys and just prohibited me from doing that, maybe it would happen again. Mm-hmm. But but he waited and uh, finally I could make my own decision and then it stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. And this is how I got to Moscow. <laughs> this is how I got to Moscow. That's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful song. That is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how I got. There's a song called "That's How," uh, and that's how I got to Memphis, which Harmony and I uh-huh. love. Um, uh-huh. um, you have the Russian version. Yeah, that's how I got yeah. to Moscow. And yeah. I'm amazed that you would ever have anything to do with Eastern spirituality or Eastern religion ever again after this. Like why you? I would be. Th- uh-huh. I would think that you would be more likely to become a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first plan was to become a Christian nun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. A Christian nun. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but then I went. I actually went to to a monastery and talked to. How do you call her? Call her the abbot. The, the, yeah. yeah. Abbotess. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, to abbotess, and um, but then. I don't know why, but I changed my mind. <laughs> something, something was wrong with it. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I just didn't like the dress. Yeah. <laughs> Black wasn't your color. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, actually, I know why. Because um, uh, she started to talk to me, and um, uh, it was the same story about rules, regulations, mm-hmm. prohibitions, and what must not be done. And I right. had enough of that already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot yeah. of a lot more free labor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Officially approved yes. by the government. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a, a it's a, another kind of um what did, what was it? How do you pronounce it? Krepesnoi. It's another Krepesnoi. Krepesnoi. Yeah. <laughs> another surf. But then you know, I moved to I went to Saint Petersburg with my friend. Mm-hmm. And then I fell in love again. <laughs> Another boy. With, with, with a, yeah, with a guy who was kind of, uh, he was a designer and a rock musician. Yeah, like Punk. I couldn't refuse. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Irresistible. So I moved to St. Petersburg after a year of being in Moscow and uh, with also with a plan to continue my studies in one of the universities. And, uh, you know, all people, like all uh, new age people in St. Petersburg uh, eat mushrooms. This is the first thing that they do when they get right, there. Like, like magic because, mushrooms. Like with their, magic with their noodles. No, magic yeah, mushrooms. Magic, <laughs> yeah, oh. magic mushrooms. Oh. Because they, they uh, grow there. Yeah. Nearby it, the city. <laughs> yeah, you have to find a cow patty at dusk after the rain. I, I'm sorry, we can delete that part. Right, go ahead. <laughs> There's a very particular pattern on the top that you have to look for, like a starboard. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so the first thing that my friends taught me was how to find magic mushrooms and how 
to pick them up yeah. <laughs> yeah. to distinguish them from all the other kinds of mushrooms. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's important. And uh, right. after a week, maybe, or oh, I don't know, maybe a week or two. So um, uh, I got to this magic mushroom experience, and um, it was like getting back home i mean i remember yeah i remember like i was standing in front of the mirror and uh, looking at myself and realizing that nothing like changed i didn't have any hallucinations on something and at the same time everything changed like yeah. everything all my perceptions and the feeling of being disconnected of being like um of this uh, profound uh, loneliness and um, being separated from other world, mm -hmm. all yeah. that disappeared. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And what I was like, okay, now I want to know how to get there myself. <laughs> yeah. Without, without In intuitively, you knew, like Patanjali, this is a kick in the door, but now I need uh -huh. to go and do this on my own without this. Yeah experience that's amazing mm -hmm. it's amazing yeah. that you you could have that self-awareness and to know that this was um just a, a tool to kick the door down yeah it was oh. so obvious i don't know why but it was like yeah hmm. so hmm. from that time I, I was just trying and searching <laughs> trying to find my door yeah. <laughs> to this kind of state of consciousness and did you <laughs> first get introduced to ashtanga yoga practice in saint petersburg it it happened um, maybe uh, 10 years uh, later wow yeah. i would i would think yeah. so. i would think it would take some time to find that and yeah like, did you start with mm -hmm. like a shivananda yoga or did you start with a like a tibetan um uh buddhist uh temple how did how did this well, where did your path go <laughs> yeah there were a lot of things like uh there was um first there was a <laughs> this uh kabbalah group mm -hmm. of uh michael lightman mm -hmm. do you know him i don't think I don't so michael, michael lightman the super popular uh a jewish guy who teaches kabbalah mm -hmm. oh <laughs> Okay. So that sounds uh, like it's up my alley. I'll, I'll, <laughs> my yeah. mother is super into Kabbalah and uh, practiced it um, uh, re religiously for five days. <laughs> no, 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 she she was she was into the visualization uh, continuously. She does it continuously. Uh huh. Yeah. It was another one of the cults that she was in, but yes, she still does it. Yeah. No, she does. Yeah. She does. She does the visualizations all the time. <laughs> I don't remember visualizations, but I remember a lot of alcohol. <laughs> a lot of alcohol. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. Uh, it was it was a yeah it was also kind of proud of it but it, but it at least there were a lot of fun there and it was not that serious and uh, like <laughs> right. it was a, jo uh, a jovial spiritual yeah. uh, pursuit <laughs> yeah kind of and then I got into Gurdjieff Uspensky group what <laughs> is that Gurdjieff Stravinsky Gurdjieff Gurdjieff oh Gurdjieff oh, yes Gurdjieff yes. Gurdjieff and a group who tried to um, 
practice uh, Gurdjieff's uh, teachings. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. And were, uh, can you describe those teachings for our, our listeners? Uh, I think um, the version that uh, I was introduced to was a bit far from the original teaching. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, because then when I finally read his books, I realized that, well, maybe <laughs> he meant something else, but we would never know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Was it a type of uh, meditation practice they were teaching or...? Um, they were teaching about uh, being present uh, <laughs> to what is going on at the moment. But this kind of presence um, was understood as uh, something, uh, as, as not a process, but um, rather something like uh, structured and stiff, I would say. Hmm. Like you are frozen in this kind of presence. <laughs> right. You know, it's um, like um, when you look, it, it was, well, it was more like uh, concentration practices, something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at something and forget about uh, everything else. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, but um, the guy who was the head of the whole thing, he was um, he was from the U.S. and um, um, he was uh, into art and ballet and all this stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for, for many reasons. Yeah. So oh. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um. I don't know if this That's was the same. <laughs> in, I don't know if this is the same in in Russia like it is in France. But Degas would call the um, the ballerinas the the rats of the ballet, and and um, it was widely understood that they were they were prostitutes because they were they were poor girls who um, their main function after dancing was pleasing the patrons so that the patrons would continue to come to see the dance. And so um, all of those paintings of ballerinas that, that Degas made, those were all uh -huh. prostitutes, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old girls who are sold uh -huh. to uh, men like Degas. Is this, oh my God. Is this true in, in Russia as well? Is that widely understood? No. Oh, okay. For you, sorry. Maybe this is a 19th That's century true. practice. <laughs> Actually, hear the story for the first time. Oh my god! Okay, yeah. <laughs> I still love the guy. I know. So no, he is an anti-Semite. <laughs> um, he was one of the most ruthless of all anti-Semites, and uh, he would stay awake. Degas would stay awake at night, and he'd read these little um, pamphlets, like when you mm -hmm. like read um, far-right fascist uh, uh, blogs on the internet. <laughs> Oh my goodness. He would read that kind of stuff. And it would, um, one of the books that he'd love to read, he would sit there and giggle and laugh, uh, are um, descriptions of Jews being tortured. Oh my it's goodness. It's one of his favorite texts. Oh. Yeah, Degas, my favorite painter. My <laughs> absolute favorite painter is Degas. And you kind oh. of, sometimes you have to sit with the dark side of the people that you love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a true. 
Yeah, where were, where were we? Okay. Um, your your so... friend was uh, uh, having sex with the ballerinas in <laughs> St. Petersburg. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think uh, they were not ballerinas. They were balleroons. Or ballerons, they, he was yeah. there. <laughs> Yeah, but um, oh, forgive yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you missed it. Yeah, I missed that part. Okay, the ballerons. Okay. okay, I didn't know but that. I didn't anyway. know that word. The ballerons. That's a good one. <laughs> mm. yeah. So this, we used to spend a lot of time in Hermitage and other museums, just um, trying to observe uh, the art and. Mm. Um, Mm, there was some like uh, special methodology of uh, how to look uh, at a painting. For oh, example. fantastic! Yeah, and uh, I don't remember the details, but um, this is uh, how somehow um, it it developed, cultivated my um, connection and um, a sense of beauty and and. Um, I realized that how how nourishing it can be, how nourishing the art and the beauty of the phenomenal world can be. And um, I had all that in my childhood, but then I forgot for many reasons. But yeah. can, I, that, can I ask you about oh, that? Sure. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like there would, there would be a, a kind of a socialist reckoning of the arts in Russia because uh -huh. so much of it is based on the aristocracy exploiting the people and uh -huh. using that free labor to buy enormous amounts of art. Because that's mm -hmm. the, everyone knows that about, you know, Catherine the Great is that when you were, if you're like an, an, at auction against the Russians, you're mm -hmm. fucked. They're going to outspend you. And then if you're going to buy like even a, like a, like a Matisse or buy a, um, um, a, a Rubens, they were going to buy 10. Not only are they going to outspend you, they're going to buy 10 of those paintings while you buy one. And I, I think people can't really understand like just how big the Hermitage is. It's 10 <laughs> yeah. times bigger than the Louvre. It's massive. Yeah, so yeah. many amazing pieces of art. It's, they have everything. All the greats. They have everything and they have 10 of it. <laughs> but like, but growing up in Russia in a in a post uh, post Marxist uh, revolution, how do you how do you um, how can you look at these things without without talking about uh, um, exploitation and, and aristocracy? Uh, <laughs> well, um, I grew up in a family of people who were completely in love with the um, cultural the culture in general with mm -hmm. all manifestations of uh, human intelligence uh, expressed through words and paintings so my parents never talked about this uh, side of uh, <laughs> wow. of the whole story they just kept showing me the pictures <laughs> and at school did you learn did you have an art class in school or, or in university and they would talk about art were they were they also just the, give you a, a painting and say how it's beautiful 
uh, we didn't really have uh, this kind of classes. And right. I remember there was a course of uh, uh, introduction into a world culture or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was not uh, specifically on arts. It was about everything mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I didn't have um, I didn't get a special education in arts, and um, uh, I'm actually really bad indica- bad educated in this field. <laughs> and uh, so um, I, my impressions and my experience uh, <clears throat> mostly uh, comes from uh, sharing. Uh, art uh, with other people like with my grandma who, mm-hmm. who loved it desperately music oh. and classical music and arts mm. and she used to take me to ballet and to opera and uh, uh, to museums and um, she, she would just stop near something uh, uh, that uh, mesmerized her with her favorite objects of <laughs> her favorite mm. uh, um pictures and um sculptures and so on and i would just stay with her there and she would she wouldn't explain anything like what is it and wh- why is it so beautiful she she would just stay and uh, i could see this uh you know feeling of uh feeling of delight at her face wow so yeah it was my kind of art school. <laughs> yeah, yeah for, absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah, truly. And so you're re-experiencing this now as an uh, as you were you were re-experiencing this now as an adult. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. First, um, first with uh, that funny guys from Gurdjieff school, mm-hmm. and and now on my own. <laughs> mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So and where did you go after the Gurdjieff school? Uh, because, uh, where, um, well, um, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, <laughs> ah. yeah, straightforward from, <laughs> what was it that attracted and, you to the Tibetan Buddhist practice? Uh, somehow this connection with Buddhism, uh, has been being present through all my life i don't know why but uh, i remember myself just looking at uh, buddhas and uh, but he said was images uh, at some books at home because uh, my mom was teaching kind of introduction to buddhism course at the university and uh, at my mm. school wow and uh, yeah your and mom she, she was t- my mom yeah wow she was teaching some other things too like uh, introduction to like Christian culture or something, mm-hmm. but anyway. <laughs> wow. So, um, and when I I remember um, going to the Hermitage um, when they brought there some really old tankas, like uh, something painted by the tenth uh, Karmapa, mm-hmm. and uh, some other things and. Uh, I was there in the room. I just didn't want to leave. It was so, so attractive and appealing. And um, very soon after that, um, a friend of mine who was a Buddhist practitioner and uh, she was already in uh, Karmakagyo tradition and Karmakagyo school, um, she invited me to to go to a meditation course with, with her. 
and it was a power course. Uh, you know, this course on of um, unconscious dying. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <A> power course? <laughs> What what did you unconscious dying unconscious yeah. dying unconscious dying of course okay. mm -hmm. yeah what what how to die what what, what right. to do when you're dying <laughs> yeah <laughs> like Whoa. with the Tibetan Book of the Dead and stuff yeah something yes. like that yeah uh, and uh, there is like kind of main technique that you are using when you are going through through the process of uh, death mm -hmm. but of course uh, to be able to do it you you need a lot more things. More things. More things. Oh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. yeah. I, I really thought done. morphine. I think is also. <laughs> you can pay directly to Yama. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, straight. And it was completely uh, unreasonable for me because I mean it was it was so crazy that I loved it from the first sight because uh, <laughs> during the week uh, there were uh, three or four meditation uh, practices each three or four hours like wow. very very long <laughs> yeah and I and I wasn't practicing yoga that time so uh, the one of the um, uh, <clears throat> main uh, um, um, one of the main things uh, was to sit straight because mm -hmm. you need a, um, a straight uh, spine to to have your central channel yeah. <laughs> being straight too because you meditate meditate on your central channel and how like your consciousness goes through it mm -hmm. up through your uh, through your head mm -hmm. through the brahmarandra and uh, uh, it was damn difficult. I mean, so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and there was, and there were many people, and it was very hard. And but um, when the teacher, it was Lama Ole, actually Lama Ole Nidal, he was my first teacher, and uh, he entered the room with uh, his like um, overwhelming smile, <laughs> and said something like. Hey guys, like um, you know, space and bliss are inseparable, and now we're gonna to learn how to die. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> space and, and Buddhism's and inseparable. Space and bliss are oh, inseparable, and, and now, now you're gonna, gonna learn, learn how, how to die. die. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I mean, there were a lot of explanations after, of course. He started from the very basic things, and then um, uh, finally we got to. Mm, to the uh, topic of retreat, so to say. But, uh, of course, when you hear something like that from the very beginning, you first think, like, what's the fuck? I mean, I want to get out. <laughs> <laughs> but there was something in him that made me stay, like, made me believe that this is possible. Whatever he means, it's beautiful and it's possible. And I decided to give it a try. <laughs> Just to, to spend, like, maybe a day or two, and then I'll see. And then I stayed to the, to, to the very end of it and got my opening you know this small head the small hole on your at, on, at your head in your head mm -hmm. which is um the sign that your practice is successful so mm -hmm. you're li you literally have an opening and in, in your head <laughs> to finish in your power course <laughs> wow good god so okay. yeah and can, uh, i mean can i ask you, you one one question. Uh -huh. um, this expression, sure. what the fuck, 
is one of my favorites. And it's it's such a beautiful, <laughs> nonsensical expression. It has you can't translate it into anything. Uh-huh. Is it do you did you use it? Do you use it in Russia or did you have a, a different phrase that means what the fuck? Um well, it's it's uh, difficult to find the Russian equivalent. Actually, you're right because it's so like multi-leveled. Yeah, <laughs> but you said to yourself, "Oh, what the fuck!" But did you say it in English? Um, it depends. It depends <laughs> on like <laughs> whom I'm talking to. Okay. But, uh, maybe I would say nothing. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. But right. but maybe I, I I will yeah say it in English too. Okay. <laughs> So does your head have a literal opening at the top then? Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you Google it, I mean, uh, you can uh, find a lot of YouTube videos of uh, Buddhist um, monks uh, who uh-huh. finished uh, this power course and uh, they walk with a little uh, <laughs> straw in their head. The and fuck? their heads are usually shaved, you know? Yeah. So you can't miss it. You you can see it. Like you can you can't fake it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm I'm convinced it's uh, fake, but go on. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, um it's supposed to be like a, a, a really small opening and um drop of blood there and uh, the teacher who teaches um the course uh, should go then and uh, um check with any everyone with all the participants and uh, look at their heads and see mm. if uh, any everyone has this opening and uh, <laughs> if, if there are some people left uh, they usually add uh, a day or two of the course, so Jesus that, Christ! Yeah. Okay. So and it, and it's it's a very traditional thing, you know, yeah. like uh, oh, traditional uh, in traditional Tibetan Buddhist uh, context, it's done this way. Ah. So you just you you really, uh, literally open your central channel. So, but the funny thing about my head was that I couldn't really stay straight during the whole course because it was very difficult so my opening was a little bit aside <laughs> <laughs> and no one <laughs> no one held you down in the night and then took a nail and hammer to your no. head that you remember no. you no. don't remember okay oh, you don't remember it i understand i okay. don't yeah. yeah i don't remember it yeah i actually i slept alone in a in, in a tent wow. and uh, yeah okay. wow. i don't remember it but anyway, I mean, <laughs> I, I was also very skeptical about the holes, although I could see it with my own eyes, but still, you know, well, come on, holes in, in the head. <laughs> but um, it was not about having a hole. It was about the state of consciousness mm-hmm. that I found myself after, and it was so clo- close to this magic mushroom thing (laughs) so it was the closest one and this is where i stayed i decided to to learn to learn buddhism and uh, to go as far as i can yeah Mm -hmm. and so slowly i started and you're still still learning still growing yeah, it's endless. It's, I mean, it's uh... <laughs> and why did you feel uh, the need to do a, uh, a a yoga practice on the side? This is um, well, um, 
it's unexplainable because uh, my husband Alex and me um, somehow both of us were interested in yoga and um, when we started to live together um, we decided to find um, a place to practice a teacher or something and we tried different schools and studios uh, in the city and nothing was really appealing uh, interesting mm -hmm. and then it was Alex's idea actually he said like okay let's organize yoga festival <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at wow. that time there were no yoga festivals at Ru in Russia at all he said let's uh, let's start a yoga festival and um, let's invite like 10 um, 10 teachers from different uh, schools and different methods and just look what what they will be doing <laughs> wow yeah. let's practice with them and that this is how we can find our way through it <laughs> that's incredible so during maybe five years uh, every summer uh, we uh, were organizing a yoga festival at the south of russia sometimes uh, once a year sometimes um, two times a year and uh, um we had a very uh, like very cool group of um <clears throat> of teachers uh who um who were going with us uh, every year and uh, um, every time we would invite uh, someone new someone else and this is how we found ashtanga <laughs> wow. Wow. who came we, we invited we invited an ashtanga teacher um from moscow and she um oh. She's been teaching traditional Ashtanga, Mysore style. And uh, she was, she, that time, she's been to Mysore like maybe uh, two or three times already. Mm -hmm. so, so she was the closest <laughs> connection. <laughs> what was her name? And, uh, Maria Starchenka. Okay. <clears throat> Maria Starchenka. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't the very tall model, was she? Do you remember no, that woman in our course? But yeah. she she was she wasn't tall, but she was very beautiful, oh. and uh, she was very like um, restless. Restless. <laughs> restless. <laughs> huh. That sounds like a euphemism. Uh, but go on. Merciless. Merciless. Oh, merciless. Merciless. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Tough. Yeah, that's who you <laughs> want. Yeah. Yeah, we had seven days. During the seven days, she taught us the primary series from the beginning till the end. And then she told me, like, okay, if you are dying and you can't move and you're very sick, you can do half. Wow. <laughs> Otherwise, you do the whole thing every day. Wow. <laughs> and I was okay, like, if this is how it's done, uh, I'm I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it very emotional for you to do this this practice that? I would think that with, you know, so many, when so many bad things happen to us, it's very difficult to release and to be vulnerable and to open, which I think is, is necessary to Ashtanga. <laughs> well, emotions came much, much later. First, mm. it was just painful physically. It was, there was so much pain, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's more or less the same experience for many people. So mm -hmm. it's just painful. Yeah. <laughs> So I remember uh, calling Maria and uh, like after a year of uh, self-practice because there were no teachers in St. Petersburg and she was from Moscow. And <clears throat> so I practiced at home and I called her and said like, okay, Masha, <laughs> uh, 
Will it be that painful all the time? <laughs> no. Uh, after a while, you'll have a different kind of pain. <laughs> yeah, that's the pain will change. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's almost like you have to break open the body, that hard shell, and then yeah. you move into like the more subtle body. Exactly. And that's a different kind of pain that starts to come yes. up. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and it took a lot of time, many years, until that um, shell started to crack open finally. Mm. <laughs> I'm interested, like, so you're you're in the the um, Karma Kagyu tradition and you're doing these practices and you're doing this mm-hmm. Ashtanga yoga on the side that has become a fascination for you. But, mm-hmm. but what are you doing for money? How do you make, how do you make, how do you, you have to buy vodka and bread and <laughs> how do you do that? Well, um, uh, I, um, before it all happened <clears throat> and um, uh, somehow around my uh, first uh, divorce, <clears throat> mm-hmm. I quit the job that I had and I was uh, an editor-in-chief in some magazine. And uh, I actually quit it because uh, at some point my job became so senseless for me. I just couldn't bear it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I also started to date with my current husband, Alex. And um, he was generous enough to give me time to find out what what do I want to do. And uh, so for a while I was um, organizing these yoga festivals and um, uh, 10, like, how, how long ago was it? Like seven years, eight years ago. It was, uh, we had a good profit actually <clears throat> because uh, there, were no, there were no other um, events like that. And no, no one... <laughs> was organizing yoga festivals 10 years ago so yeah wow and um i used to translate and edit um all a lot and um had some little money for it too and um worked a lot for our buddhist sangha of course for free but it was experience in translation in editing uh buddhist texts and it was very useful wow so yeah and um, then um, when we realized that I practice yoga like for three hours a day, usually <laughs> I say, "Okay, you you have to you have to teach." And I said, "No way." <laughs> yeah, that's another thing you have to do on top of all of the yeah. other things. It becomes impossible. Yeah. Um, I was just I was sure that I, I would. I won't be able to do it. First of all, because my body was so resistant and so unflexible. And uh, I mean, I spend like, I could spend half an hour trying to understand what's wrong is why, with my down dog. Why is it more like a camel than like a down dog? <laughs> Nobody could explain me it. I mean, because uh, Russian Ashtanga was very vile at that time. There were no alignment workshops, no technical workshops. It was like, okay, do it, and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, luckily for me, uh, sometime soon, um, maybe after I practiced, well, 
after six or seven months of practice, I went to Mysore for the first time. Wow. And uh, then um, somehow it happened that uh, Sharat managed to persuade me that it's not that bad, that uh, I have the potential. <laughs> really? <laughs> really. I mean, I mean, he really did. And, and I was very grateful. How did he um, persuade you? Uh, not verbally. Like just right. encouraging me here and there, and uh, assisting in backbending mm -hmm. and uh, so on. And I left myself with the feeling that I actually can go a little bit further, a little, at least a little bit. Yeah. And then uh, I went to Moscow to uh, Darby's intensive. Right, Darby. Darby and it and was and, yeah, it was teachers intensive, but it was so cool. Mm -hmm. Even for me being very unexperienced, it was so cool because he was teaching more like uh, conscious and uh, relaxed way of Ashtanga. And of course, giving a lot of alignment clues and techniques and uh, that I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> uh, well, and then slowly, slowly, other teachers uh, started to come to Russia and um, I would go to every workshop in yeah. moscow yeah so yeah wow. and uh, mm, then i slowly started to teach something too not my sort classes because uh, there were no space for that uh, kind of thing uh, but uh, some you started know, some like guided classes or led classes not led classes because it was uh, it was obvious that it's too difficult for, for a normal right. yeah. human being. Yeah. But uh, somehow, like uh, Ashtanga-oriented classes with uh, some kind of theory about breathing and uh, so on, and um, like uh, the easiest parts of the sequence. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. And so yeah. On. <laughs> not, yeah. Too, not too difficult, Ashtanga for beginners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of like that, uh-huh. <laughs> and then that eventually evolved into your Ashtanga Yoga St. Petersburg school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was it was truly um, a gift and a privilege to be able to come and 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 uh, teach there to be a part of your community. Uh, it was so surprising. It was like a like a punk. It was such a. It was such a classic ashtanga community like very punk and raw and <laughs> doing it yourself yeah. in a, you know in this little in this beautiful brick room and it was so it, there was so much passion and so much sincere mm -hmm. devotion it was like wow these people are really doing it you know and this is um just like it is just like it was for us in the old days and oh it was really it was magic to be a, to be a part of it and it's it seems I, I almost feel like um, it's an exotic time now. It's like a fabulous story that we have when we used to be able to travel. <clears throat> and we yeah. we can tell our grandchildren, yes, we we went to Russia once. We <laughs> we true. used to go on airplanes. <laughs> and it was a very magical time. Feels uh, like that. <laughs> do you I do uh I don't know how it is in Russia now. Do you think it could it could come back? Do you think we'll be able to visit? Or are, I, I don't know. Maybe we're on the precipice of total destruction and collapse of our <laughs> civilization. Maybe yeah. nobody knows. Yeah. 
<laughs> You're up for uh, anything, though. I can tell. You've already done the course on dying. So. <laughs> You're ready for it. I, I want to ask you, though, was it was it like this when the Soviet Union collapsed? Was it just the same? Like just like you wake up one day and like the whole world is upside down? No, uh, there was so much hope. There was so much um, hope for better. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the thing is that my grandpa, he was um, a deputy Mm -hmm. in uh, the first um, Soviet Union, how would you call it, parliament? Yeah, Uh, the parliament, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and um, I think um, it was the only time when uh, the election was really fair. <laughs> yeah, back then. I mean, no, in the old days. Nobody knew how to cheat. <laughs> yeah. In the old days, the elections yeah. were more fair. Yeah. yeah. So this is how he got there, and he was he was very sincere in his um, desire to to help his own country. So. <clears throat> Uh, after a while, so the the Soviet Union collapsed, and he was um, in the House of Parliament that time. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow! And uh, uh, he was one of those guys who uh, who tried to stop the tanks just talking to the drivers. <laughs> right when when the tanks came to shoot Boris yeah. Yeltsin at the yeah, at the, yeah, exactly. the Russian White uh-huh. House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they blew him so, up. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know that uh, there was no news. So um, we, uh, our family, being in Siberia in our country house, we we didn't know what was going on. Wow. And, uh, how was he? Was he alive or not? And uh, nothing. So uh, the whole family would gather around. Uh, a TV in a friend's house trying to to catch the moment when finally this like information blockade would uh, break up and um, you right. know what's, what's going on there and uh, of course we were worried like awfully about him but uh, everyone hoped that <clears throat> finally it would happen that the Soviet Union will will disappear yeah, <laughs> from wow. the earth so and when it actually happened uh it was like i don't know maybe somewhat similar to celebration of um, biden's elections in the u.s as yeah, far as yeah. I could see it from <laughs> yeah the yeah yeah there's that kind of celebration yeah. or like the wall coming yeah. down like or like the wall yeah. coming down in berlin yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah wow. wow incredible incredible that's an amazing heritage that you have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask. I can't complain. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> I want to ask. Can't, you-, you can't complain publicly now. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so much of your your Instagram posts, which I love and adore, uh, talk about and are, are really centered on like the divine feminine and the Shakti. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, the energy, the <laughs> esoteric energy, the subtle energy. And can you just talk a little bit about, I guess, maybe the the effects that that you've experienced through the Tibetan practices, through the yoga practice? And it seems like you've con- connected quite deeply to this essence of energy, which is deeply feminine. <clears throat> and And that's 
um, I mean, it's very different in a way from the energy that most people associate with the Ashtanga yoga practice, which seems uh-huh. quite masculine in its essence. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole thing started from uh, my attempts uh, to understand how can I uh, how can I build relation uh, relationship. Um, with the energy of desire it was a kind of burning question for many years because at some point i realized that um this is the thing that uh, i'm built up from like uh, the thing this thing that is called desire and of course it's uh, it, it includes any kinds of uh, intentions and relations and whatever so this just craving constant craving for something mm-hmm. and uh, mixed up with the um, ability to create and to manifest something mm-hmm. that um rules me in a way i mean yeah <laughs> yeah to be honest yeah yeah we, we human beings are made from desire and uh, uh, at some point I, I started to wonder like if I can, uh, what can I do with it? Because uh, it was completely uncontrollable, un- unregulated, and unmanageable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering, like, okay, uh, it feels like I have an endless pool of resources, but I have no idea how to deal with it. And uh, um, are there any ways of doing it? And uh, I try to find an answer in Buddhism, and um, uh, there are some, um, let's say, <clears throat> clues here and there, but um, no one teaches it like straightforward. Like, okay, here's your desire energy, and this is how you can uh, deal with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and then, <clears throat> then, then I met Thailand John, and then I was a. Uh, Listening uh, to one of his um, lectures, I heard him saying that uh, uh, something like um, Mulabanda is a way of uh, transforming the energy of desire into unconditional love. <laughs> oh, <laughs> beautiful. When, yeah, when I it squeeze was... my anus, I feel that. <laughs> unconditional love. Absolutely. It's fantastic. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> mm, wow! Then, then I just I was like, "What? How is possible?" And and then of course uh, I started to ask questions, and um, then I got to know uh, about this um, Indian tantric uh, thing about um, creative energy and its um, relationship with the with the consciousness, and um, that. Uh, we live in sentient beings are just uh, like um, emanation or manifestation of the union and so on. And um, uh, then I also learned that I can't control it in any way. That well, the the most uh, um, the most um, uh, possible way is to treat it with the deepest um, reverence and um, admiration <laughs> mm. uh, and 
just to give space uh, for it to unfold and get out of the way so it won't be entangled in my own um, images of myself, of the world, and uh, of how the things are and how they must be done. And this is all, uh, and this is what Buddhist meditation is all about, actually. It's just not described this way. Mm -hmm. But uh, what you're doing there, you're just making space for the natural, uh, for your natural uh, currents to move through you. And <laughs> that's mm -hmm. it. And of course, easier said than uh, than done. But still, um, this is how um, I've got my way of um, connecting to it. And this Indian mythology describes it so uh, beautifully and uh, so precisely. At least for me, it sounds like that. Uh, it just uh, goes right into the center of my heart and um, <clears throat> um, I also realized that well while I was trying to understand like what is it and how can I deal with it um, I of course tried all this uh, you know ways of just cutting it off <laughs> like of course okay I'm not I'm not into desire anymore. I just <laughs> yeah. And then that's and, done. And then, and then yeah, that's done. Mm. And then you realize that that there is no life without it. You just mm. can't move. You can't even. I mean, you can't even think. You can. You have no inspiration for anything. So it didn't work <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's. I mean, it is interesting because it's a bit of a a juxtaposition in a way. Because I know, like in you know, typically in the Ashtanga yoga system of practice, you know, people are like trying to control, you know, their diet in a very strict way. Usually they're sleeping, their schedule, their routine, mm -hmm. like everything's quite regulated and quite controlled mm -hmm. and regimented almost. And, mm -hmm. and what you're talking about is, is quite beautiful. And I, I share your, your sentiment and your heart and your experience here because it's, it's also like at some point so much control like kills the love and it kills the, the exactly. passion and that yes. desire. And and if you can just like allow that maybe passion and desire to kind of flow through you and to like move with it and be more like a river and like flexible or something with it, then then it can it can feed you still, right? Of course, yeah, and um, uh, you know there is uh, this idea of um, desire not being uh, connected to any particular object, mm -hmm. and so when it is not connected, um, entangled uh, with any particular object, then it this energy moves freely through you. And mm. then it becomes so nourishing and supporting, and uh, you realize that okay, <laughs> all my life is manifested through this energy, and uh, the only thing I can really do is to participate consciously in this process, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, wow. all the illusions of control uh, just fade away because obviously you can't mm. control anything at all. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although we keep trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we keep trying. That's of course, beautiful. We keep trying. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really, 
an incredible achievement that you've that you've made just to have this awareness and i i do hope that it, you you're able to find a, a cult that springs up around you <laughs> in the, in, i think that would be this is, you know, very, this is quite what just. my husband keeps saying yes, yeah this is what right? he keeps saying like, yeah i yeah, think it's, it's time uh, it's, it's time. time it's a good idea <laughs> I, I just want to ask, the last time we saw you, was that in um, Ty Landrum's workshop in, um, in Goa? Was that? Yes, did, you were yeah. there. That was the yeah. last time. In Goa. And yeah. you, you were, we saw you for a couple of days and then you stayed with him. Is that what happened? Uh, he invited me to assist him. I think we only Goa. saw you for like an hour or two. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, just an hour or two? No. You've been you've been seeing me during the whole primary series. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the primary series plus yeah, because yeah. yeah. we were leaving and he yeah. was coming, and you were yeah. arriving that same day. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's let's hope we can all do that again and meet again someday, and and have another fabulous run at it before civilization falls apart. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's keep fingers crossed. We think about you guys often, really. Yeah, we would, the shower. We would love to uh, have your book translated into English. Yeah, that'd be nice. Oh then, my gosh, one day. <laughs> then we can maybe read that's the book your, your next creative project. And review it on the show. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe the second one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that would be delightful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, okay. Anna. It was so wonderful to connect with you and chat with you today and and uh it was so enlightening. Yeah, 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 truly. Thank you guys. It was such a great pleasure to talk to you. I mean, really, truly. Thank you wholeheartedly. <laughs> and if anyone is ever visiting St. Petersburg, it's uh they can come practice with you, can't they? Sure. Always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us what your website is, Anna? Um it's uh, uh yoga dash shala dot ro. <laughs> dot ru. Okay. Dot okay. ru. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, Everything is dot ru in mm, Russia. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, it was it was just a delight, and it was so nice to connect with yeah. you again. Thank you. Thank you, guys, and I hope I'll see you somewhere. I <laughs> hope so. I hope so. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking